Thank you for downloading from Digital Mindfulness. This is episode 26. Welcome to Digital Mindfulness, where we share insights, wisdom, and tools that you can use to enhance the quality of your digital and digitized lives. I'm Lawrence Ampofo, and my guest today is Dr. Fiona Atwood. Fiona is professor at Middlesex University, where she focuses on the area of sex in contemporary culture. Particularly, she focuses on sexual cultures, new technologies, and controversial media. Fiona is also co-founder of the journal Porn Studies and is the author of Porn.com, Making Sense of Online Pornography. In this incredibly interesting interview, Fiona and I share with you how technology and society shape our perceptions of our bodies, sex and so much more. Enjoy this talk with Fiona Atwood. So, Fiona, um, welcome to Digital Mindfulness. It's an absolute thrill to have you here, and I'm really looking forward to discussing more about you and your work, but thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, so Fiona, for, um, so to share with people that don't yet know, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? How did you come to focus on sex and culture and new technology? Um, I, well, I'm, I'm, I work as an academic, I'm a professor in cultural studies, um, and my background was actually um, in media, and one of the things that I became really fascinated by was the way in which um, people who were studying media were taking all kinds of, of media seriously that hadn't been taken seriously in the past. Mm. So, you know, things like people's interest in soap opera or... Um, gangster films, you know, all kinds of popular uh, cultural texts. But there seemed to be this silence around pornography. Mm. Um, so whereas you would have a discussion about why people might really engage with gangster films, how fan communities might sort of um, get together around discussing gangster films, you know, they were taken seriously as things that mattered to people. Pornography was always discussed as a separate thing, as something that where we had to make um, a decision about whether it was a good or a bad thing. And that just fascinated me that we were discussing it in a completely different way to all the other kinds of popular media texts that we were taking seriously. So that was the start of it. Um, and I suppose over the years, I've become more interested generally in, in the way that all sorts of other technologies are now part of people's sex lives, uh, whether that is... Um, pornography or whether it's um, taking Viagra or whether it's, um, you know, the sort of the people experimenting with um, Oculus Rifts, um, you know, all, all the way, different ways in which technologies are becoming part of people's sex lives. So I have that broader set of interests now, not just about pornography. So um, because I know that you've just... Um well, I say you've just started, but that relatively recently you started the um, this new journal yes. on poor studies. And how is that going? 
It's going really well. We're at the end of our second year of publication now. Um, and, well, you're probably aware that when we proposed the journal, uh, there was a lot of discussion about what might be in it and whether it might be a very bad thing or not. Um, that discussion all seems to have died down now, and we've had really positive responses from other academics and researchers who, I mean, we're, we're pleased because they've they've said um, that, you know, this is a really good model for research generally on um, the way that we should be looking at issues around people's um, bodies, technology, culture, media, identity. So even people who aren't interested in pornography as such have seen it as, as being a really good quality journal that's, that's opening up lots of new discussions. So we're really pleased with the way it's going. So a lot of people think that they know what pornography means um, and it, as you were saying before it's such a loaded term um, and there's, there are lots of kind of ethical concerns bound up within it etc but um, there are also phrases that people use like food porn and torture porn when they're talking about certain horror films but what does porn actually mean? Um there's a book by a man called Walter Kendrick who talked about the history of pornography from, from the 19th century onwards. And he describes the way that people have fought and fought over uh, making a definition of porn. And he came to the conclusion that nobody would ever agree on uh, what porn was. So it's kind, of, it's kind of hard to be sort of concrete about it for, for all sorts of reasons. First of all, because... As you say, people use the term porn in such different ways. So um, food porn or um, there's a book that's just come out called Cabin Porn, which is about is, it's, it's pictures of, of lovely log cabins and small houses that you might want to live in. Um, and, and when people use the term porn in that connection, they're, they're describing the, the kind of, I don't know, the... the that you the relation you might have to those things that they're kind of you know they're going to arouse you in some way that you're going to get turned on by pictures of, of um, recipes and, and cabins and so on but I think even where people are talking about things that we would recognize as being more obviously pornographic they, they are still using the term in such different ways so um, if you look at where people have tried to do research with um, to, to find out what people's relationships are with porn, people often use the term porn, but they're they're referring to very different things. So some people would include kind of racy books. Um, other people would mean um, hardcore videos. Other people might mean um, music videos, or you know all kinds of things. So it, it's difficult because even if we made a definition of porn. Um, it wouldn't cover all the all the things that people are doing with sexually explicit text. So it's it, in a way, it's kind of pointless to have a definition of porn um, because it's it's never going to include everything. And of course, I think the other thing that we found with the journal as well is that where where do you draw the line between um, something that's marketed as pornography and then something like an erotic thriller, which is again, maybe quite sexually explicit and maybe arousing for some people in the audience. Is it porn or is it not porn? Do, you know, do we include that or do we not include it? So I think 
the, the def, you know, even if you come up with a definition, we could make one up right now, but then we'll, we'll immediately find 20 exceptions to it or 30 things that people will disagree with and have good reasons for doing so. So um, I'm not going to bother, bother trying. <laughs> I, think it, <laughs> I think it's a bit of a dead end in some ways. So um, porn sites, given that we can't decide on what porn actually is, but... But porn sites are more popular than any of the other um, popular popular websites, um, such as Netflix or Amazon or Twitter. All of those combined, and many but many people are worried about the pornification of society, especially when it's so easy to get sexually explicit um, images or videos of people. So, I'm wondering through your research, what effects have you seen? On people of the access to um, to content like that. Well, um, the term effect isn't one that we've really used in our research because that kind of implies that um, there's a real one-way relationship between people and their media, you know. And and we tend not to use it about you know literature. What what effect does literature have on people? What effect does opera have on people? It's a bit of a loaded term. So in the big audience project that we did recently, um, which you can find online at porn.research.org, porn uh, the kinds of questions that we asked were much broader than that. We asked um, people why they accessed porn, um, how it was or wasn't part of their sex lives. Uh, we asked what their histories with porn was so when they'd started looking at porn and whether their engagement with porn had changed over the years we gave them all sorts of um statements that they might want to identify with or not identify with so we, we were trying to sort of go beyond that idea of a simple it has an effect on people um and uh, what we really wanted to do was open up a space where people could tell us about the way they engage with porn because even though there's a lot of discussion about porn. There's not very much discussion at all about how people actually engage with it and why it might matter to them or might not. So um, we didn't talk about effects. We, what we did find was that people are using pornography in, in, in lots of different ways. Um, so for some people, it's, um, it is a solitary thing. It's something that is part of their sense of themselves as sexual being that doesn't necessarily have a relation to anyone else. It's, it's part of their relation with their body, a, a fantasy world and so on. For other people, it was much more um, straightforwardly part of a sexual relationship with a partner. Um, so, for example, one of the interesting things we found was that uh, more, more people than we expected were saying, when I'm away from my partner, and you know, we're not together all the time, um, Porn is one of the things that we use to maintain a sexual relationship between the two of us. Um, so, you know, lots of lots of different things, really. And, of course, there are all sorts of things like people sometimes use porn just because they're bored. Um, so it, it's interesting, having got beyond that term effect, you start to see this real diversity and variety in the way that people engage with pornography. Did you see, for your, for your research, did you see any kind of, um, I guess, any patterns or any, any trends? Like, for example, were, like, were there any tastes that were linked to, say, I don't know, occupation or to gender or to or maybe even, like, generational 
types. Yes, and I think some of the generational things are are probably one of the most interesting things that we found. Um, So, for example, um, one of the, the, well, for for example, there's a, a kind of gender difference in that there's a tendency for men to say um, that they use, they turn to pornography when they're aroused, Mm. whereas women might be more likely to say they turn to pornography because they want to be aroused. So there's a kind of, it's it's having a different role. But then when you look at the responses of people by generation, older men also say they turn to pornography when they want to be aroused. So there are some differences in gender, but then within that they break down in different ways according to age group. Um, We also found um, that pornography seemed to have a particular value for young people and for people who were working out what their sexual identity was. So, um, you know, in in those instances, it it became a kind of way of exploring, um, you know, who am I sexually? Does, Does this turn me on? Am I interested in this? Would I want to do this? Is can I see myself reflected in these different kinds of pornographies? So in some ways it was, it was more of a kind of learning experience and that was, that was related to particular groups of people. That's really interesting then because I guess then technology and the, I guess the the ease of being able to um, access pornographic material can be useful then, for example, in helping people to um, work out what their sexual identity is well it seems to be certainly the responses we had indicated that that it was it was taking on that kind of uh significance um then again lots of people use it in a way that they describe as quite superficial you know it is it's something that um it's a quick way of relaxing it's a way of getting into a different mental state and so on so it yes it has different kinds of significances some of which seem quite important and integral to people's development and other 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 significances which seem much more related to other kinds of entertainment say like comedy or you know or watching an action film or whatever so there there's, there are similarities to other kinds of media as well i think so have you done much work then I guess because you spoke earlier a little bit about um, um, like the virtual reality and the kind of greater immersion that technology can give to to virtual pornography yes. if you like um, have you done much work there and if so what have you found I haven't I mean this is something that I'm starting to get interested in now I think for years because there's always there's been this kind of you know these predictions that cyber sex is coming anytime you know, you know the, the virtual suits will be here any minute. People have been saying that for like thirty years, and then I think everyone thought, "Look, this isn't going to happen." <laughs> you know, the, the, all of these predictions that have been made. You know that whatever's been invented is actually a bit disappointing and weird. <laughs> so, you know, I, th- I think, but actually now, with certainly with the invention of things like the Oculus Rift. I think perhaps the moment has come. Maybe in ten years' time, I'll look back and say, "Oh no, that was just another, you know, thing when it, where where it didn't materialise." So I don't know the the, the research that I have done, um, which I think is kind of in, going slightly into that territory, is that I I have an interest in um, the way well what used to be called cyber sex, but which which was very basic in terms of technology. So I did a number of interviews with men who used online 
sites to kind of interact sexually with other people. But I mean, this was this was all done through typing text. It was completely non-wizzy, non-futuristic, and so on. But you know, another instance of of the way that technology does become integrated in people's sex lives, and lots of people were doing that, and it was it was a big part of people's lives in some instances. So I think there's there's always this tension between, you know, waiting for the virtual suits to arrive and imagining, you know, we're all going to be having sex with robots. But at the same time, people are actually using technologies in quite mundane ways, you know, things like um, sexting, you know, that's a a perfect example of the way that people are already using technology um, in in the way that they flirt, in the way that they create sexual images of themselves and so on. Um, that that are just kind of very everyday, um, and that don't don't look like something from twenty fifty. <laughs> so I, I really like this because this is part of what we talk about here at Digital Mindfulness, insofar as technology being used to support what we already do as humans. You no, know? yeah. so um, so the idea that is not that technology is going to take over us, and we're going to be, um, you know, we're going to be so digitally distracted that you know that um you know that phones are always going to demand our attention and that we're going to be completely unemployed in the future but rather technology is going to support what we already do um and make that better make um these processes easier and more fun so as you were saying with flirting for example and and sexting that sounds like a really good example of that because people already flirt and using smartphones, say, would make it easier, but perhaps using porn to just to get into a, a different state of mind, maybe using it as a substitute for sex or something like that. There are lots of ways in which maybe porn um, and technology and the ease of kind of accessing that content may, I don't know, may have like a negative effect on our psyche or on our kind of our sexual identity, perhaps. Mm. I think it's, I mean, it's part of that more general concern, isn't it, that, you know, there's a lot of talk all the time about not just pornography, but, you know, what, that, that idea that you're always on and when do you stop working if you're using technology and, you know, how do you create spaces away from work or how do you, where you know, where can you go to have solitude anymore? And I think, I think that's always the case when technologies you know, every new technology, even the old technologies now, like telephones and and so on, have been accompanied by really serious worries about what is this going to do and how will we manage to live with it. Um, and, and it's a challenge because you know, I, I think probably all of your listeners are, are having to deal with that on a daily basis. You know, how often do I check my phone, and you know, do I spend too much time on Facebook and? Um, should I just turn everything off and go away for the weekend? And I think I think that the debates about um, sexual media are, are they're, they're part of that as well. We're all having to learn to live with these things in ways um, that that don't overwhelm us, and it's hard. We haven't had to necessarily do it before with the technology in front of us, so it's a it's a learning process. But I certainly think people have a good go. You know, when you when you look at how um, young people um, who've grown up with te- these technologies that are kind of inventive and creative and 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 
integrate those things into their lives, not completely unproblematically, of course, but people people are doing that work all the time, aren't they, in their daily lives? So would you say then that, and again, this is just me being devil's advocate, but would you say that these digital technologies are contributing in any way to the sexualization of society or rather is it is this kind of is the sexualization of society is as kind of as you wrote in your book is that something that would have happened anyway is that just kind of like a normal um i guess human exploration and evolution of our of our sexuality um i suppose i think i probably use the term sexualization in a slightly different way because it's often used by people to mean something's gone bad and we, we become sexual in a different way. I think if you look back historically, there's a kind of earlier period of sexualization where um, se- sex becomes very important as an area of discussion and concern and practice. Um, in the 19th century, that tended to happen in relation to medicine. Um, so this is where you get the explosion of interest in diagnosing people's sexual problems. This is where we get all our names for sexual perversions from. So, so there was a real interest in sex then, and that, in a way that's a kind of form of sexualization. I think um, that's continued. Sex is something that, that we, we seem very concerned about as a society in all sorts of different ways. But the focus has perhaps shifted more to um, the role of media and technology that seems to be the thing that we're concerned about and, and you know, how we might be altering our bodies and um, where we're developing relationships with representations or where representations are becoming part of communication. Um, so I think in that sense, we are going through a process of sexualization. I don't see it as necessarily good or bad. I see it as a, a cultural preoccupation. Um, and, and again, it's interesting that that's happening, why, why sex has become so central to our ideas maybe of who we are or, um, you know, what, what our identities are and, and what communities we belong to, where, where we belong. A similar thing's happening with gender, if you think about the way that kind of explosion of interest in the last few years around, uh, you know, there being... They're being lots of different ways of being gendered and people wanting to take that very seriously about you know how they identify um i think this is this is all part of a, a contemporary sexualization but there's a lot of things going on in there that, that isn't just about um sexual arousal it's kind it, it kind of seems to have more of a, a, a wider social significance so you were saying there that which is really interesting that actually we're more <clears throat> we're more concerned about the technology and and maybe our perceived you know how we perceive that it's affecting us rather than the sexualization bit and that and that was really interesting could you just like elaborate on that like do you find that there are kind of two different concerns going on here when people talk, do talk about say technology and and sexual media well, I think I think specifically when people get concerned about sexual media, there all, there seems to be a worry almost that that people are learning to be sexual in the in the wrong way. But then it's it's difficult to know what what, what would the right way be. And so so people who are very vocal about sexualization never seem to have 
um, an idea about that other than that they want to remove lots of media. Um, that doesn't seem to me to be anything that's likely to happen. Um, but also, it you know, it suggests that in the past, what did we, we all grew up in the forest and learned to be sexual somehow, what, just naturally, or it fell out of the sky or something. People have always learned to be sexual through the things that are around them. Um, so, you know, I, th I think that idea that, that there is the right way to grow up sexually is 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 a bit odd um but but yes i think there's there's a broader set of concerns that people worry about technology so for example in the, and, and the, the things often get wrapped up together of course in public discussions so people worry about how frequently people might be turning to things like cosmetic surgery um something and an, another kind of technology that's much more available than it has been in the past that there is gradually becoming that idea that yes, you can alter your body. Um, you you know you you can you can do things that that weren't possible in the past. And again, it's something that we get quite worked up about. What, what is it okay to alter? Um, how you know who should be allowed to do it? What reasons should people have to be allowed to do those kinds of things? Um, and these these concerns are starting to come also around robots, of course that. Um, as robots become, you know, more more human-like, and it's it seems likely that people will um, have more opportunities to have different kinds of relationships with robots. And how you know how do we make sense of all of, of all of that? What what are the ethics of it? How do we manage it? So I think that there is there are specific concerns that people have about sexualization, but they're they're part of this broader set of concerns about how we how we deal with technologies as they're invented and as they arise and as they become more accessible to people um one of the things you said earlier was that was this whole idea that we're um that we're learning to be sexual um constantly and we only do that by the stimuli that surround us and so the thing that surround us most is you know the internet and the web you know, and we can, we're, that's how we're learning. That's one of the ways that you say we're learning to be, to be sexual. And, um, and I'm just wondering what your take is on this. Like, do you think that this is actually a good medium through which to learn to be sexual um, or, or, or not? I know, I know it's a, I know it's a kind of a, it's a very like dichotomous question, you know, is it good or is it bad? But I'm just wondering what you what you think what you think of that of this environment as a way to learning to be more sexual, especially um I guess with people who are growing up with this environment and people who didn't grow up with this environment but rather adapted to it. Yes. I think I mean the 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 evidence from where people have talked to young people about their sex education and about you know, related issues like pornography and so on. Um, I think young people do seem to be saying that they they would like a lot more um, thoughtfulness and attention from adults about the way that they are learning about sex. So technologies have been used in some really productive ways, for example, to offer information about sexual health, to advise people, um, technologies that have been useful for, say, for example, people who um, who are gay or in various sexual minorities but can't come out in their 
physical communities, you know, the, the technologies that offer a huge amount of, of, of stuff for people to learn about, whether it's about bodies or it's about uh, different sexual identities. But when pe- young people are interviewed, they do say they also want sex education. They want places to talk to adults about it. And they're really unhappy with the sex education they're getting. So um, I think, in a way, there's a danger that adults could be really abdicating responsibility by saying they can find everything out now online and we should just, you know, either we leave that and and let what happened happen or, you know, the, the, the probably a more common view is we should be really regulating that stuff so they can't get access to things that we don't think they should be seeing. The question that then sort of falls through the gap is... What do, I, what do young people actually want to know? What do they want to discuss? What kind of places do they want to discuss it in? Um, and what do they feel is missing? And uh, the, the things that they report are that they find sex education to be quite um, focused on bodies and disease. Um, and they want to talk about pleasure. They want to talk about the ethics of relationships. They want to talk about what's possible um you know there's a whole kind of set of dimensions of sex that are missing from sex education um and and that they they think should be there of course adults are terrified of how they're going to provide this stuff you know it's not easy to do so i think i think it is a bit of a burning question um and technology isn't just going to answer it by some magic uh there needs to be some serious thought really to uh to how how people can, can be helped and supported as they grow up as sexual beings and it, it is it's a very neglected area i think i really really like that, that answer fiona because because <clears throat> you're right we are all we are all sexual beings and we are you know if you're a child you are growing into a sexual being and one of the things we have spoken about on the podcast before is this whole idea that we need to become more literate about our digital environment. We, need, we just need to understand it more so that we can then be better able to speak to people that don't know anything about this or to children that are growing up in this. And maybe it was, it was interesting that you were kind of talking about this idea of being maybe porn literate that we shouldn't let this environment shape us, but actually we should be engaging with it and with um, other people who are learning to sexualize themselves. You know, so we do become, actually, we become much better at um, identifying what is useful to us and what is not useful and what we like and what we don't like, and that we become more comfortable talking and engaging with this with this environment. Yes, and I, I think literacy is a really good term that that you know i think young people well and old people as well we're not necessarily very literate about technology we need to become so but i think there's also that young people seem to be asking for help in becoming emotionally literate Mm -hmm. there's a lot of concern at the moment about how we become much more literate around sexual consent so people you know are not so so people are are kind of become skilled, become become articulate, skilled people who know how to treat each other in a sexually ethical way, and that that's part that's part and parcel, I think, of 
of growing up in the world that we're in today. We need to be literate about all of these things. Um, and, and perhaps we're not paying as much attention to how we steer that process as, as we could be. So we, we've spoken to a few um, to experts such as BJ Fogg, such as Nir Ayal, about the whole way that technology um, can be used to um, program I shouldn't say that word program, but to encourage certain behaviours in people. And so therefore, technology really then can be made to be addictive. And some people have reported that they can be addicted to porn. But when you look at the kind of the literature and the books, there are lots of experts that say that the term addiction isn't really a useful term for what these people say they're going through. So I wanted to know from your perspective, um, do people get addicted to online porn? And if so, why why do they? I think I think the term addiction isn't a very useful one. Part and there, there are a couple of reasons for that. Well, partly because um, there's there's no solid evidence that shows that a, a, any kind of chemical process of addiction, for example, takes place. Um, the other reason is that there is such a massive industry that's grown up around addiction. Um, it's really in the interests of people who want to treat so-called addiction to promote the idea that people are addicted. Um, I don't think it's necessarily helpful for people who have problems with porn or anything else to think of it in terms of an addiction. And certainly, um, if you know, therapists that I've talked to who are working with people who do have a problem with porn, and it, you know, I'm not saying that people, there aren't people who don't have problems with porn in the same way that there, you know, of course there are people who have problems with food and relationships and all sorts of different things. But that idea that you are somehow you're addicted or you're not addicted is not necessarily a healthy or helpful starting point for for, for dealing with. Um, for dealing with those problems, it, it's it's very simplistic. It's you know assumes that uh, it's something that's beyond your control. Um, often the the kind of the treatments that are uh, offered to people who are addicted are um, extreme forms of self regulation, and there's often a real sort of form of moralism, I think, underneath that idea of addiction. So. You know, if you go and look at um, any of the tests that you can do to find out if you're addicted, you know, very often it will be you can you can see that there's a real disapproval of you know if you're if you're engaging with porn at all, if you have casual sex, um, if you you know there's a real distrust of all kinds of sexual behaviours that are actually quite widespread. Um, it doesn't seem to me very helpful to start characterising those as as being characteristics of addiction. They're things that people need to manage, obviously, and become literate about. But addiction, it's so black and white, I, I can't see that it, it adds anything to people's ability to um, manage their lives. Do you think that technology companies have a role in helping people to become more literate about this particular topic, especially... Like, like I say, for maybe um, children that are, you know, kind of just starting their first foray into into the online world, and 
even then for, for adults that are kind of confused, do, do you think the companies have a role to play in this? Or do you think it's largely us that need to become more, for example, porn literate? I think, I think more kind of different perspectives, the better in a way. I think, and I think part of, the, part of the problem is that often where people are discussing these issues, they're, they're doing it kind of in their own little silos. It's, um, it's quite often difficult, for example, for you know, academics to talk to other academics. They don't necessarily talk to sex educators or sex advisors or therapists. And therapists don't necessarily talk to technology developers uh, or creatives or business people. Um, and and it's, a, it's a real missed opportunity because there are all sorts of different knowledges that could be brought together, um, which could spark off different ways of thinking about things that, you know, don't, don't happen when people don't talk across disciplines and don't talk across areas of expertise I do think there's a role I don't I don't say I know exactly what it would be but I think it would be fantastic if all of those different communities had space for more conversations together wow well um well Fiona look this is um this unfortunately seems like a good place to um to leave everything but um where can people find out more about you and your work um, well, if you, you, if I, I come up, <laughs> I've got quite a, an unusual name. I come up easily in Google. I have a website which has just crashed this week, but it will be again before long. And it's just fionaratwood.com. So that's where people could go. Fantastic. And I'll make a link to that in the, in the show notes. But um, Fiona Atwood, thank you so much for your wisdom and your insight. Um, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fiona. That was excellent. Knowing that we need to better understand online porn so that we can shape it instead of it shaping us was enlightening to me. And I hope that was the case for you as well. Thank you so much again for downloading this podcast. We're really looking forward to being with you again next week.